This is Dr. Karen Wilson-Starks, and welcome to my podcast series, The Voice of Leadership. So glad you're joining us today. I have a very, very special treat for you. Today, I have a wonderful and special guest. And just in case you were wondering, we're going to learn today what are the benefits of having a very nice company. So stay tuned to hear more about that. So let me tell you about my guest called Crazy or Genius by Forbes Magazine, Matthew Manos is the founder and managing director of Very Nice, a design strategy practice that gives half of its services away for free to nonprofit organizations, home to a thousand plus volunteers and partners from around the world. Very Nice, launched with a mission to alleviate expenses for nonprofit organizations while increasing access to design for all. Since its founding in 2008, the company has been able to give more than 40 million U.S. dollars in professional services through its groundbreaking pro bono and open access initiatives. The work of Very Nice with more than 850 brands has reached millions of people across the globe and includes clients such as the American Heart Association, Apple, the City of Los Angeles, Disney Imagineering, Google, and the United Nations. Matthew is also the founder and editor-in-chief of Reginald. Reginald publishes step-by-step toolkits in six languages and across 175 countries for creative problem solving on a pay what you want basis. Currently serving as the inaugural chair of Mayor Garcetti's Creative Advisory Board, he advises the mayor on ways the creative community can impact economic recovery for small businesses in Los Angeles. He also currently serves as a design and innovation advisor for the International Rescue Committee and an advisory board member for Pondo Populous. Matthew is also the assistant dean for academic strategy and an assistant professor of design at the USC Iovine and Young Academy, a school that brings together design, business, and technology to empower the next generation of entrepreneurs and innovators. As assistant dean, he's an executive strategist, curriculum designer, and storyteller for social impact. When at UCLA, he launched the first course on entrepreneurship in the history of the School of Arts and Architecture. Prior to his appointment with USC, Matthew held many adjunct teaching positions in the US and also in Moscow. His own academic credits include Masters in Fine Arts in Media Design from Art Center College of Design and a BA in Design Media Arts from UCLA. 
Matthew has delivered lectures, facilitated workshops, or exhibited work at 200 plus events in 19 countries, including two TEDx talks, 40 plus business accelerator programs, and colleges and universities around the world. Select collaborators and hosts also include Apple Education, the Embassy of the United States of America in Moscow, the National Endowment for the Arts, Singularity University, and many others. Matthew's work has been featured in numerous print, online, and broadcast venues, including ABC, Business Insider, CBS, Entrepreneur, Fast Company, Forbes, Fox, Good, MTV, NBC, Success Magazine, The Wall Street Journal, and Wired, just to name a few. He is the author of two books, How to Give Half of Your Work Away for Free and Towards a Preemptive Social Enterprise. Based in Los Angeles, he is passionate about making creativity and innovation more accessible. So Matthew, Matt, thank you so much for being with me today. What an honor to have you on The Voice of Leadership. Thank you so much for having me and for the wonderful introduction. Excited to be here. You are so welcome. You deserve all that introduction and more. You've done an awful lot in a relatively short period of time. So I'm going to just launch right in, Matt, and I'm going to ask you a question about your origins and beginnings. You started this company on purpose with a plan to give away half of what you were doing. So what inspired including this level of generosity as part of your business model? Yeah, great question. So, you know, in high school, when I was 16, I used to skateboard competitively. And so as a result, uh, you know, you'd find me at the skate park pretty much every weekend training and practicing for competitions. And there was one weekend in particular that I met the founder of a nonprofit organization at a skate park. And he actually had a nonprofit organization that taught kids in wheelchairs how to participate in extreme sports. This was super inspiring to me. First time I had ever met the founder of a nonprofit organization, and I loved skateboarding. So I knew I wanted to get involved somehow. Offered to design some stickers for him because luckily I had just about a week prior started teaching myself Photoshop. The stickers weren't great. They didn't look good, <laughs> but it did sort of cement to me an interest in both design and working with nonprofit organizations. So flash forward a few years after that, when I was 19, still a student at UCLA, I launched Very Nice as a design practice that would give half of its work away for free to nonprofits. And, you know, really kind of what inspired me to do that beyond that encounter at the skate park is learning that every year in the United States alone, nonprofits will spend close to $8 billion on people like me, on design and marketing professionals. And that's just in the US. There are a million nonprofits in the US, but even if you divide that up equally, it's a lot of money. And so, you know, I couldn't help but think, what would the world look like? What kind of impact could be made if people like me stopped charging for their services for nonprofits? kind of a bold, somewhat unrealistic question or provocation. But this was something that kind of came to my mind and ultimately inspired me to adopt a model that would focus heavily on pro bono work. And I've been doing it ever since. 
Well, you know, that's really significant. Let me ask you about that founder. Obviously, he's teaching children in wheelchairs how to use the skate park. That's phenomenal in and of itself. What else about that founder caused you to think more deeply about the nonprofit organizations? What was it about him that truly inspired you? So, you know, I grew up in the Silicon Valley, and it's true that everyone and their mother literally is the founder of something up there. So it is not uncommon, you know, in my childhood to have met people that, you know, maybe had a startup or uh, were part of the dot-com era, et cetera. However, I had never met the founder of a nonprofit organization before. And I think what it really was beyond being interested in the general topic or kind of inspired by the way that he talked about his mission was meeting somebody that I felt like for the first time ever, I saw this person who would do anything for this cause, that it just really, truly aligned with their personal mission. And that big question of what is your why? Why are you here? And, you know, as a high school student, I think a lot of high school students get a little existential of what what do I want to do? You know, why am I here? What are my next steps? I'm applying to college, all of these questions. And, you know, meeting someone that I felt had that much clarity around that was very interesting to me and very inspiring to me. And what ended up happening is I started working with other nonprofits and meeting people in that community. And I found that that was not an isolated case, but that this is what the social sector is all about. It's basically a big room full of people who have found that sense of purpose. And that was something I wanted really badly. That's really great. So it seems like what really was the key was being inspired by his own passion for what he was doing. And then that sparked in you, your passion for what you're doing even now and opened up a whole new world about who are these nonprofits? Here are people who are making a significant contribution to the world around them. And so you're thinking, how can I resource those who are resourcing others in a way of speaking? Exactly. And, you know, to be honest, in the early days, I would say for the first few years of kind of doing pro bono work, if you asked me, oh, why are you doing this? My answer probably would have been similar. I'm very inspired by the passion. You know, I like being able to apply my growing talents in design. And that probably would have been the end of my answer. I think it took me several years to realize the actual power of what I was trying to do, which was pro bono work. I couldn't really have told you that what I was doing was pro bono work, for example. It took time to kind of learn and find out some of these statistics around how much money is being spent, what can be done when a nonprofit's able to reinvest resources into the cause itself. That really took years to figure out. So it was definitely an evolving purpose, but I just knew that these were people that I wanted to be around. So in a lot of ways, you had the heart for it first, and then all the details and the terms and so on came much later. So let me ask you, Matt, a question about this. Many people might be wondering, how can a company be profitable giving half of the work away And yet, on the other hand, for both your businesses, you know, very nice, and also for Reginald, you've had tremendous success. So to what do you attribute this success? How does this work? (laughs) 
<laughs> this <laughs> generosity, how can you be generous and profitable? You know, that's a question that I get a lot around Very Nice is basically how do you give half of your work away for free? And I, I've gotten that question so much that the first book I ever wrote was called How to Give Half of Your Work Away for Free. So this is something, you know, that I've thought about deeply. And, and part of why I wrote that book, too, is I thought that I stumbled across a model and an ethos and a mission that others in the design industry should adopt or, you know, kind of apply in their own way. And that's what sort of inspired me to talk so much about this very topic. At the highest level, you know, really how the model works is I realized that if I wanted to give half of my work away for free as a design practice and do just as well as another design practice, I had to do double the amount of work that they do. That was the simple, terrifying math, essentially, is if you want to do just as well and give half away, basically, you just have to double the work. That, that's it. So I found that out. And then I essentially kind of went deep into thought of thinking, okay, how can I essentially increase my capacity and my bandwidth? That really was the big question. And this is what led me to kind of conceptualize this volunteer model that we have, where, uh, as you stated in my bio, we have over a thousand different volunteers in our network that we partner with on projects. So what that has allowed us to do has had you know, enormous benefits. One, it's given me the bandwidth to do more work than I ever could do alone or with a small team. It's allowed us to scale up for specific projects and provide that support. But also it's allowed us to have a real diverse body of talent to work with, more diverse than I ever could have in kind of my own small team in LA alone. So that really is kind of the magic of it is finding out a way to increase your bandwidth and your resources. And for Very Nice, that ended up being by way of building out this volunteer program that we have, which is very unique to a design firm. You don't, you, you really don't see that applied in, in this industry like you might in a more grassroots uh, kind of organization. So what I love about this is that we all know that you're going to do something more significant when you bring in the right partners. And so you learned that lesson about increasing your capacity and increasing your bandwidth by bringing in the volunteers. And that gave you a more diverse pool of great talent, people who also, I presume, would share some of your same passion in terms of the mission and the why. And so being energized to really do the work if they're willing to volunteer for it. So that's powerful in and of itself, because not only are you resourcing the nonprofit organizations, you're also multiplying people who have a heart for this type of giving back at the same time. So let me ask you this, Matt, what impact would you say that this generosity of your company, Very Nice, has had on other people to include the volunteers? Mm, it's a great question. I, I was actually talking to a good friend of mine last night about this very question. Very Nice will turn 13 years old in a few days. Whenever I'm a very reflective, kind of sentimental person, so whenever we reach any year increment of an anniversary, I can't help but kind of think back at the experience that I've had, et cetera. And one of the things that really hit me this year that I had not previously considered was, you know, I mentioned this number of a thousand people and 
after a while, a number can just feel like a number. But those are a thousand individual people that made the decision that they wanted to be a part of our network and a portion of them becoming employees. Over the years, we've had close to 100 different people on payroll, aside from sort of freelancers and volunteers. And, you know, I, I couldn't help but think for all of those people, as they kind of continue through life and they reflect on their life story, very nice is part of that. And for some reason, you know, it just was not something that I had thought about, honestly, that deeply until this milestone. And it just meant so much to me to think that out of all of the choices somebody can make of things to do with their time, this is that blip on their life story, right? And so I imagine that that has impacted the volunteers in many ways. Uh, I've heard from them directly about that topic. For example, we've had volunteers that are actually in high school and in a very kind of similar state, the state I was in when I was in high school, who have told me, you know, they ultimately selected their college major because of confirming that they love this kind of work that they did with us. So that right there sets them on a trajectory for life. I've heard from people who are early or mid-career who volunteer with us, which is sort of the majority who said that, you know, being able to work with us in this, uh, a, a, the nonprofit that they're joining a team for gave them that sense of purpose that they felt they were lacking in their day job. When I just hear things like that, you know, again, kind of combined with this whole idea of being a part of someone's life story and, and what that means, I just think it's a, it's really special and it's a type of impact I didn't intend to have. You know, I, I always had my eyes on displacing funds or alleviating expenses for nonprofits. But there is this kind of ripple effect the moment that you involve a community, which I think is quite beautiful. I also think there's quite a ripple effect. When you're doing good in the world, there's other good that multiplies as a result of it. So when I think about the thousand volunteers, I'm imagining they're like seeds that are being nurtured out there in the universe, so to speak. And then those seeds are planted and they'll have other seeds and they'll grow. And so it's spreading kind of like this purpose and this passion beyond just you to many other people so that these young ones who are in high school, they're getting a sense of purpose. They're early career people. They're solidifying purpose as well. They're getting job experience and they're deepening their passion for the giving back aspect. So I think that this is just a really profound and wonderful business to be in where you are really in a 360 degree way doing good in the world, so to speak. That's one of the ways I might think about it or talk about it. So I want to ask you, Matt, about the company name, because I love your company name. Very nice. So how did you come up with that? (laughs) Uh, That's a great question. It brings back good memories, too. I feel like I'm someone that's packed with stories that are, you know, full of deep thought and reflection and, and, and so on. And, and the name is not one of those stories. <laughs> so, you know, honestly, what happened is I was, I remember I was sitting in my first apartment at UCLA, looking at my computer. I remember I had reached a point with my kind of freelance and volunteer practice that I was starting to have other friends join me in these projects. And that was a moment where I realized, okay, I need to have a name for this thing. It's not Matthew Manos anymore. It's got to have some kind of name. 
And so I opened up a Word document and I typed the question, what kind of company do I want to have? I sat there for maybe a few seconds and I write down the first bullet point. I want it to be a very nice company. And then I kind of looked at that and I thought, oh, it'd be sort of funny to just call it a very, like, very nice or a very nice company or a very nice design studio. And, uh, and I essentially just ran with that. And so it was, it was about 15 second brainstorm and 13 years later, I, I, I'm stuck with the same name, but I love it because I think there's sort of this, uh, element of, oh, where do you work? Oh, I work at very nice. I do like the kind of, uh, playfulness of that, which I feel like, uh, aligns with the kind of brand and mentality that we want to bring to projects as well. But, but honestly, it was not something that was as deeply thought out as we might think. (laughs) Well, you know, as a psychologist, here's what I would say. We (laughs) always say sometimes that the first things that come to your mind are actually the most profound and the deepest ones and that really touch your heart anyway. So my guess is that is the perfect name for your company. And I resonate with it because it's really a lot about what I'm about too in business when I think about bringing positive leadership to the business environment. So when I hear your name, the name of the company, it just really makes me smile. And I'm just delighted by it, actually. So I think it's great that it didn't take a lot of energy or work. It came to you because it was already there. That's what I would say. So let me ask you about your backstory a little bit. Tell us a little bit about your family and your growing up experience and how that impacted you and prepared you for what you're doing now. Yeah, wonderful question. So my uh, my father was a lawyer and my mother was a teacher. My dad for years worked in a law practice and then he started his own practice of just himself consulting with clients. And my mom followed a similar trajectory. She was a grade school teacher anywhere from first, third, and fifth grade. She kind of hopped between those grades and uh, worked for several different schools and eventually started her own tutoring practice. You know, I think seeing them both become entrepreneurs, as well as both be people who ultimately were sort of in that service-oriented business, as opposed to maybe a product, I think had a pretty profound impact on me. I could see firsthand also what I was getting into because I knew that there were hard years and there were great years. And that is kind of the blessing and the curse of self-employment. I think that that certainly had a big impact on me. My parents and I, volunteerism and donating to causes were a part of our life. They weren't a huge part of our life. Uh, I think I I truly stumbled into that in terms of really wanting to invest as much energy as I have. But I certainly have come from a very generous family as well. So that had a big impact on me. Growing up, I was obsessed with art. I, I still am. I would paint since I was very, very little kid, draw, make comics, uh, write stories, anything in sort of the creative arts, I would naturally cling to with very little convincing. That was something I was just drawn to. So for me, what was kind of interesting, the story that precedes the skate park story and having just learned Photoshop and so on, that came about a week prior to that, that came around a time where I was coming to terms with the fact that I wasn't going to be an artist when I grew up. 
it was something I really wanted, but I was very afraid. I had a lot of fear around being able to support myself. And so I had heard about design and to me, it was a really nice bridge that would allow me to be an artist, but have more career prospects. And so that is a uh, slightly unromantic reason why I originally got into design was more, I thought this was a way that I could kind of realize my passion for the arts in a slightly more practical way. It was a, a bit of a compromise as well. And I think, you know, as time's gone on, what, what's really lucky is I've been afforded more time to actually explore the arts again, doing work that was more immediately marketable from my perspective, at least, it kind of allowed me to do that as well. I would say it's a little bit of kind of my childhood. I grew up in the Bay Area. I think one other important part to my story that I rarely talk about is in high school, I was quite sick with a pretty significant stomach issue. I had a tumor in my stomach that had to be removed that didn't end up being cancerous. And obviously I'm, I'm, I'm here, I'm okay. But it was a very traumatic experience for me. And I remember around that time, I was very inspired by uh, this kind of idea of almost kind of confronting how fragile life is. Uh, this was maybe when I was 15 years old, I want to say. And things kind of started to add up where it was these existential questions I brought up earlier. What, what am I going to do with my life? And the answer, the best answer that I could come up with at age 15 was to hopefully leave some kind of a legacy and impact as many people as possible. I do think that that is, again, not necessarily something I talk about much, but had that not happened, very nice wouldn't exist. I, I can certainly tell you that. I, I'd likely be doing something else right now. I do think that's a, a key puzzle piece. Yeah, that's a very important part of your story. And I would even reframe something you said, because you said it, maybe the design piece was a compromise. And the way I look at it, it was the unique tapestry of your life kind of unfolding because you had the art piece going in, you had the entrepreneurism from your family, you also had the, the service-related roles for both your father and your mother. And then with your illness, it was sort of like the wake-up call that sometimes we don't get until we're a little bit older, that life is short, that it's fragile, and we better get started now with whatever impact you know we want to have on the world. And I think that that unique, if you will, combination of circumstances, events, exposures, and talents kind of created this unique business that is you. And it's why it's so successful, because it is uniquely you. You're not trying to put on something that belongs to someone else. It's been custom designed you know, for, for Matthew Manos. That's what I would say. It's custom designed for you. So I think that's a beautiful part of your story and what you've described. Now, Matt, I know that over the years, and even though it's not been a lot of years, but over the years, even you have had to transition and you've had to reinvent in some ways in your business. So what is it that you've changed since the company's inception and what prompted some of those changes? Yeah, wonderful question. So, you know, I think something very interesting about my time with Very Nice is I've been very stubborn from a mission standpoint. I've even said in, in interviews in the past, if we ever stop giving half of our work away for free, I would essentially just stop the business. 
to me, that is so core to what we do is this, uh, you know, mission around alleviating expenses and making creativity and innovation as accessible as possible to people. So that that's the one thing, honestly, that has not changed. But I have to say that literally everything else has. And I think that's because, you know, what I found in business is that you kind of can't be stubborn, to be honest. The market is uncertain. The needs of customers or businesses change constantly. There's new technologies, there's new platforms. You kind of have to be very flexible. And for me, what I found is that I can't be flexible with our mission, but I can be flexible with our what. And kind of the way that I, I put it sometimes for any entrepreneurs listening is, I think it, it's good to care more about why you do than what you do. And so to give you some examples of that, very nice launched as a graphic design firm. So we uh, specifically offered logo design, uh, you know, marketing collateral. Eventually I added websites into the mix once I learned how to do that. And then about four years in had learned about these kind of emerging terms like design thinking and design strategy and human centered design and eventually all of these kinds of buzzwords and got really excited by the fact that design didn't necessarily have to be limited to a sort of deliverable for a very specific need, but that it could have a more systemic impact, a more kind of large scale impact on an organization. So around 2011, we started to slowly integrate strategy. And by 2016, we were 50-50 offering visual design services and strategy services. Then as of mid-2019, we got rid of all of our visual design services and only focus on strategy and workshop facilitation. So what we were founded doing, we don't do anymore. We're essentially a completely different company, but we have the same name and the same mission, and that's kind of what stayed. So it's been interesting, you know, and, and I think in terms of, so what's so you also asked, you know, what are the decisions that lead to these changes? There's two things I can say. One is my own interests changed and what I was excited to do changed. And ultimately I wanted to like what I did with this company because if I don't enjoy it, you know, why am I even doing it, right? That, that, that's kind of a big thing. I, I could go get a job at a wonderful company and enjoy a different kind of job. I, I'm choosing to do this. So that I think is one just very kind of on the personal side, just my own interests changed. I didn't enjoy doing graphic design for clients anymore. And so, you know, the transition there was, okay, I'm going to hire team members that do it. But still, I just wasn't as excited about the work that our company was doing. And I wanted to be the person that's out there so excited about what we're doing. Uh, so that was one thing. The other is I did notice that speaking of kind of change of market or of needs, that the value of graphic design was really, really declining. Things like crowdsourcing have become more popular. Things like Squarespace launch that have beautiful templates. The kind of perceived value monetarily uh, of design was changing, whereas of strategy was not something that you could have a, a robot do or that you could have templates, et cetera. And I found that that was a very promising space and it's, 
it's kind of proven to continue to be a promising space to be in. You know, honestly, the, the, the A, a lot of stuff has changed. The mission hasn't. B, I've changed things based on what I'm excited about personally. And then C, I have been trying to make sure that we're offering things that will actually keep us here and profitable as well. You know, I think what you've just outlined is so important. And I want to highlight a piece of it because I want to talk about the work that you're doing with the mayor's office Mm -hmm. and where you're helping businesses that have really maybe faltered and struggled a little bit coming through this pandemic. So you yourself have reinvented. And I I love the fact that you talk about keeping the the core values, if you will, and the mission the same. That's central to what you're doing, still following what you're passionate about. So if you stop being passionate about something, you can switch to something else. And thinking about what does the market need? What do people really want right now that you have the ability to offer and to deliver? So share with us a little bit about how you're working with those businesses who have had to be more agile and reinvent and turn around during the pandemic. Yeah. So this kind of goes back to our our history working with the city as well, which has been really just an exciting part of Very Nice's chapter. You know, I'm not originally from Los Angeles. I've lived here for maybe 15 years now. But I knew that wherever I landed, I wanted to contribute to my community. However, I I had noticed that a lot of Very Nice's work was not for organizations in LA. I noticed that many years ago, and then essentially started kind of trying to course correct to make sure that we are doing a lot for the community that we're in as well. That did start to lead to not only working with local nonprofits, but also working with the city on things like uh, a partnership we did with another agency called Team Friday to do the branding for the Great Streets initiative that the mayor has. Uh, We worked with the mayor's innovation team on a recruitment campaign for the LAPD a couple of years ago as well. And through those kind of initiatives, you know, again, it sort of scratched that itch of how can Very Nice contribute to the community that we're in and be be a good neighbor, basically. The mayor's office was working with a couple of different partners, Robin Agency and Art Center College of Design. And they brought us in to talk to us about this initiative that they're working on called LA Optimized. And this is, this is an initiative where they knew they wanted to basically provide services to local small businesses that have been impacted specifically by the lockdown orders who maybe don't have an online presence. And so, you know, when I heard the idea, I, I immediately got really excited about the idea of being able to kind of scale impact through a program like this, again, for the local community. And so I have been working with the mayor's office to essentially establish a creative advisory board where we've brought together design leaders from across the the Los Angeles region. And I now I serve as chair of that board. And in doing so, you know, I'm able to kind of lead the group around creative brainstorming for different unique initiatives that can be done by the mayor's office in coordination with LA's creative community. And one of those, you know, that we're kind of providing some oversight on along with other partners is the LA Optimized Initiative. And so the way that this works is a local business owner can apply to work with a local creative 
the mayor's office will give that local creative a grant to support their work. And then the business doesn't have to pay to work with that local creative. So this was something that was really exciting to me as an impact model nerd and as a pro bono nerd. I, I kind of saw this as a, almost a government subsidized pro bono. And that immediately has been kind of the way that I've been framing that initiative. And in thinking about kind of scaling that very kind of future thinking, but in a day where maybe there's a universal basic income, for example, does the government provide these subsidies or assistance with cost of living in exchange for pro bono work? Does pro bono work become the default type of work that we all do to make our living actually? All of these questions are just very provocative to me and, and uh, you know, really drew me to this cause and this initiative. And I think what I see too is consistent with your mission, you're having an opportunity to build, again, capability and capacity within these small businesses that are struggling and probably don't know how to rise up out of the lockdowns and so on and so forth. And yet you have gifts and talents that you can lend to them. And it's interesting how money flows in different ways coming from the government to the creatives and then the small business gets resourced and then they will generate more for the community again. It's a wonderful system when you think about it in that way and kind of like the ecosystem and how, how everything operates. So it just seems to be a sweet spot. It fits in with the kind of work you're already doing, you know, when you really think about it in terms of purpose and in terms of mission, if you will. So let me ask you a different kind of question. You work in both the academic environment and also in the business environment. And I want you to just think about it and talk about what do you see as the future, if you will, of social entrepreneurism? You're already on the cutting edge of many different kinds of services and approaches, such as what you just said now about LA Optimize. So tell us more. What do you see about as the future? So, you know, I think with social entrepreneurship, to talk about the future, one good note is to talk about its past. And I'm going to talk about just the very recent past, actually. Cut to 2005, 2006. Social entrepreneurship has a long history before that as well. But that's really the moment that it becomes more, starts to become more of a household name. And that's with Tom's Shoes launching and creating the one-for-one model. And I think, you know, what you saw happen after Tom's is a wide adoption of social entrepreneurship in the product-oriented space, especially that one-for-one model. And then, you know, now it's trickled into other industries. Very nice. Wasn't the first in the service-oriented business, but we were certainly one of the first in the design industry to adopt a social entrepreneurship model. And I think what we'll kind of continue to see is more adoption of these types of models. But the, the more kind of immediate future is it won't be the adoption of a model, for example, one for one uh, or give half. It'll be the adoption of many different models. And I would see businesses starting to have impact models, three to five impact models, some that are uh, impacting their external communities or beneficiaries that, that you might think of, and then others benefiting more of the internal communities, especially with uh, all of the important conversations around safety in the workplace, diversity and inclusion. You know, I think that we'll start seeing more internal impact becoming a focus. And then to me, the, the ultimate uh, sort of 
next chapter for social enterprise is something I've been referring to as offset enterprise. And this is still a newish idea. It's something I've been thinking about for the past uh, year or two. But the concept is that much of social enterprise focuses on impacting people or communities that don't necessarily have anything to do with what that business does. There's sort of creative ways to tie it back. For example, something like a, a social enterprise that for every backpack they sell, they donate school supplies. You know, there's kind of these creative ways to, to tie that narrative. As we kind of see in some conversations, a lot of the world's problems were caused by businesses and by issues that have been brought from capitalism and a kind of hyper growth mindset as well. And so this concept of offset enterprise that I have, I see it as sort of social enterprise 3.0, where you'll have businesses launch that have a mission to make up for all of the mistakes that their industry has made. So they're actually correcting their own industry as opposed to trying to make impact again on, on kind of things that are so external to them. So for example, a fast food restaurant that launches specifically to tackle uh, income inequality in the housing crisis, a fashion company that specifically tackles issues around fast fashion or slavery, anything kind of in that realm, I feel like would be in my mind, you know, the eventual future of social enterprise, just kind of what I've been thinking about lately. So if I'm really understanding that in its broadest sense, in a way, you're talking about businesses challenging themselves to step up and to operate in a more, in a way, earth and people friendly way, so to speak. And if they recognize they've been causing harm, they can rethink it and figure out how can we do the business and serve in a way that's less harmful. Yeah, you know, another, a great example, I should get this right, but it's either Pepsi or Coca-Cola. So sorry to one of them. One of them had put out a new uh, a bottle that was created using waste collected from the ocean. And it was kind of pitched as a, a really great environmental project. But at the same time, 90% of the plastic waste in the ocean derives from that company. So how much should we be celebrating this one-off project instead of actually encouraging them to look at themselves and say, how is it that we can stop producing so much plastic waste? So I think that that is kind of a critical pivot that many businesses in that impact sector can make, uh, you know, to again, not really make external impact, but more impact on their immediate space, uh, on the, the land that they stand on, so to speak. That's actually a good example. And until they think about and figure out a better way to do it, in the meantime, cleaning up what is already polluting is a good idea. So, right. <laughs> so we wouldn't want to discourage that because that's right. also a good thing until the better idea occurs to someone and they can implement it. So Matt, just briefly, what would you say, because you mentioned the word legacy earlier, what is the legacy that you really want to leave? How do you want people to remember you and to think about you and to think about the companies that you've started? Mm, ah, that's a good question. So I think 
a lot of this has been answered through my work through Very Nice, but also my work as a teacher. Working as a teacher is one of the most satisfying things that I've ever done because you are giving students frameworks and mindsets that they can carry with them for the rest of their life as well. It's it's very similar to being a parent, <laughs> uh, you know, and, and just kind of trying to nurture these kids in a way where they don't become designed to become like a mini Matthew or something, but you help them design their own path and their own life. I would love to be remembered by my students as maybe the professor that gave them clarity around the thing that they're most passionate about. That's certainly one legacy that I would like to have. With Very Nice, I think through our sort of activism and advocacy around pro bono work, I do hope that the legacy we leave is that pro bono becomes more and more normalized in uh, these privileged design firms that honestly could be doing this work more. And through Reginald, I hope that the legacy is this library of tools that people can use and remix and benefit from uh, for many years after I stop making them. <laughs> and maybe someone else will pick up where you left off and continue to make what's needed at that time, which is a good thing. You'll be passing the baton on to the next person, if you will. Absolutely. Tell us again, Matt, about the two books that you've written and how people can find you and get a hold of you. Yeah, so, so I've written a, a book called How to Give Half of Your Work Away for Free. And you can't write a book like that and make it not free. So it, it's uh, available at givehalf.co. You can read that online. We did do a print run, but we sold out of, of both editions of it, but it is online. And then uh, the other book is called Toward a Preemptive Social Enterprise, and you can learn more about that at futureimpact.co. In terms of other ways to get in touch and learn more, Very Nice's website is verynice.co. I'm pretty active on Instagram as well and, you know, always try to respond to direct messages. So if anything that you heard today sparked a question, you could always send me a DM at Very Nice Instagram. And then uh, reginald.co is our library of toolkits, really growing library of different creative problem solving methods for things like branding or business model design or impact measurement, all kinds of topics on there. So I do hope people check those out and take advantage of them. Oh, absolutely, because that's tremendous value you're offering. It hadn't occurred to me if you write a book about how to give half away for free, to <laughs> give the book away for free, too. So that's phenomenal. Thank you for saying that, Matt. And I really do hope people will go to those resources and we'll have those in the show notes as well. So finally, Matt, let me ask this. What words of wisdom do you want to leave with my audience of executive business leaders? Oh, wow. Okay, so... There's a lot of ways I can answer this, but maybe in the in the spirit of what we were just talking about, about new directions for social enterprise, is to actually look at what you're doing and therefore maybe what you're not doing and try to see, you know, how can an impact model be integrated into your business that can have that kind of external impact that we all want. We all want to be able to track how many people did we reach uh, how much money did we donate, et cetera, but also maybe more of an internal impact, internal to your industry. How can you make up for any maybe known issues that the industry you work within has sparked or caused? Uh, you know, I think that that would be 
a great sort of question to end on, to, to reflect on and, and see what kind of answer you come up with as well. Thank you so much, Matt. I really appreciate you being here with me today and sharing with my audience all of this great wisdom and wisdom in someone who's very young and yet has the wisdom of the ages. <laughs> so <laughs> thank you so much for, for stopping by to share that today. <laughs> oh, of course. Thank you so much for having me and thanks everyone for listening. Absolutely. And so I'll say to my Voice of Leadership audience out there, you heard it from Matthew Manos, where he says the challenge for you as an executive business leader is to look inside of your organization and figure out what is the integrated impact model that you can implement in your business to have an internal impact and also an external impact. And as we've heard from Matt throughout this interview today, he's talked about how important important it is to really be aligned with your own passion, to be aligned with your purpose, to figure out what that is, and to do that sort of work that gives you that kind of joy and energy. And also, what I heard from Matt today is how important it is not only to build yourself and to get yourself in the right space, but also to cause other seeds out there to grow in other people, to help them figure out what their passions are and to develop their capacity and their ability to give back to other people. And I'm also I'm hearing today that it is so important to just make this contribution to the community at large, even those people who you don't know, that our impact has to be measured in so many different ways. So you've heard a lot today from my guest, Matt Manos. Take some of that with you and put it to work so that your legacy is also powerful. Thank you for being here and we'll see you next time. Did you know that teams do the bulk of the work in successful organizations? And for this reason, it's very important to build and develop your teams. And first, you might want to know where you are in the process. So I invite you to take the complimentary team assessment to identify your current strengths and also your learning opportunities in launching and developing high-performance teams that get dynamic organizational results. So go to my website, www.transleadership.com, and you'll see on the homepage, there's a brown bar that says, take the high performance team assessment. You'll find it just under the running photographs. Click there and get your results. You've been listening to The Voice of Leadership with me, Dr. Karen Wilson-Starks. And I want to give a special thanks to jazz saxophonist Ron McMillan for granting us permission to use his gifted music on our show. Thanks for listening. And remember to go to my website, transleadership.com, for more strategies, insights, and leadership resources.